Hi there, this is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, February 17th, okay. 2019. We're in uh, Valentine's Day hangover yes. <laughs> situation here. Right. Um, but uh, it's chilly, it's bleak, it's winter. It's February. In line it's February, but we, of course, have had a an action-packed Valentine's Day week, which is uh, exactly what you'd expect from Tamsin and Dan. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, three different events that uh, we attended this week, uh, and also uh, a couple things that we caught in the uh, newspaper. Uh, well, that is the whole point that of is the podcast. <laughs> women coding. For those of you wondering if there are women coding, there are. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, maybe a little bit differently than some other people are. Um, and, um, you know, just a couple of interesting obituaries um, uh, and even uh, Tolkien. We don't talk about Tolkien too much. <laughs> so, we're going to talk uh, about him today. Well, first of all, I, I need to start out on a sad note. A friend of ours, Stan Spencer, passed away. Uh, last week, mm -hmm. and uh, Stan was intimately responsible for the uh, kind of restoration of uh, our house in Limeport. Oh, yeah, and, okay. And uh, he was uh, the brother of a good friend, uh, Linda McClellan, and you mentioned anything, and Stan would know something about it. <laughs> He was a hoarder. Yeah. He was sadly an actual hoarder, but uh, he was just a hoarder of knowledge as well. And he knew a little bit about everything. Uh, so you didn't even need your PC when you, or your smartphone when you were around Stan. So I uh, definitely were going to miss him, and we're grateful for uh, every little input he had here in Limeport. Uh, so aside from that, oh, little um, update on my reading, I am working my way through the Vampire Trilogy, the Vampire Witch Trilogy thing by Deborah Harkness. And it's a lot of fun. Yes, it's a, full every, of history. Every time I turn around, you've got the Kindle in your hand reading that thing. Yes, it's got uh, all the things I love. That's right. History, romance. Some might say you're ignoring your husband. What you were enjoying the book. Which is all that matters. Yes, so I still can re recommend that. The All so Sorts, All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness. Which is also uh, some kind of television show, but we haven't seen that. You're just reading the book. Yeah, I'm afraid to see it because you know how it is when you love something yeah. and then you see a book and yeah. then you see how it's articulated mm. or brought to life by someone else mm -hmm. and things don't always measure up right. to your imagination. I think you're taking the so right... I'm nervous about that. Don't do it. But it Just is, stick it with is the, the book. kind of fun book that I bet is great as an audible book as well. Yeah, I think Just that's to right. to listen to right. would be fun. All right. So in our nonstop Valentine's week, we went to Broadway. Well, we had kind of a spectacular day yesterday. Yes. We started out with a fabulous walk by the canal Yes. here next to, uh, in Bucks County, next to the Delaware River. And even though it was very bleak kind of scenery, it was beautiful, wasn't it? Yes. The sun was shining? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes, but then we got into a car with Nixon and Mark. We went into New York. We cleaned up. 
<laughs> we we went, scrubbed up. We went hopped in, in the car and uh, zoomed off to New York. An hour or so later, uh, Dixon and Mark. Dixon and Mark are great people to go to New York with. Right, especially when they drive, which they did yes. yesterday. And Dixon is so excited and enthusiastic. Yeah, and uh, takes pictures and does you know really makes the most of the moment mm. and uh, mark is a little you and mark having worked in new york a lot are kind of blasé yeah. it's like oh here we are um but uh, dixon kind of yeah, brings the situation Dixon's alive. The, one, the one guy is going to shake hands with the, the guy in the uh, spider-man costume walking along the street i mean you got to worry about dixon but in any event uh, it's a big change from lineport to new york city where again we are Amazed on a regular basis about how many people are in Times Square on any particular random weekend. Oh, this is a three-day weekend. I don't know how that cuts, but it was unbelievably jammed. And uh, we got to the theater on time, which is the important thing. And we saw uh, Choir Boy. Would you like to explain what Choir Boy is, Thompson? Choir Boy is a play with music by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who also wrote... Moonlight. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. And this originally... The Moonlight. The movie. The movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So uh, this originally was debuted in 2013 uh, by Manhattan Theater Club Mm -hmm. off Broadway. Really? 2013? And so... And the lead was the same guy, uh, Jeremy Pope, who was terrific. Um, And he was the, the same lead in 2013 as now. Yeah. Uh, so it's the story of life in a uh, black private boarding school and uh, centers around members of the choir. Right. And so you get some fabulous a cappella singing right. and dancing, stomping, just terrific. And uh, you see uh, various personalities. Uh, working their way through problems one might deal well, with in there, high school. There are a lot of tensions. Uh, having it's to do a coming with, of age. With, with race, with sexuality. Uh, they're working through it in a pretty serious way. And, I mean, I thought as drama, it was uh, successful. And I also would agree with you that the musical performance was uh, kind of uh, great, uh, really exciting, so much so that you found yourself wanting more of that exactly exactly it was just uh you know interspersed little tastes and you said don't stop well you know it's funny because uh i mentioned to you i just saw in the paper there was an article that was an interview with isabel hubbard who's a great french film actress who's been in a lot of things she's going to be as you and i were discussing she's going to be something called the mother of atlantic theater company next month but she really is an international star and you know, so she goes to plays in New York like anybody visiting New York, in this case from a foreign country. And they, she said, she's asked, what has she seen that's impressed her in the last few years? She says, number one, The Glass Menagerie with Sally Field in 2017, which I know was one of Dixon's favorites. And number two, Choir Boy. And so really she's stalking Mark and Dixon. <laughs> exactly. But, he, but what she says about it, it's interesting. She says it's not quite a musical. It's an adve- choir boy. Choir boy. It's it's an adventurous modern way to renew the genre. So what is she saying? What she's saying is kind of what we're talking about. That it's not really a musical in the sense that the characters are advancing the plot by singing to each other about situations. It's just it's something. It's a drama, but part of the background of the folks involved is has to do with performance. So once in a while they're performing, 
uh, in the way they would uh, given their normal duties and normal clubs or whatever. And it, it's sort of aside from the drama, but at the same point, it resonates with the drama. Well, they're all singers. Yeah. So sometimes they express themselves in song, which is logical right. for people who love to sing. And in fact, keep in mind, they're fairly young guys away at boarding school. Yeah. And so when they break into... Um, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Right. Your heart aches for them. Right. Uh, and but, it really is, is, is it, to some extent, not just a performance, it's expressing what they are feeling. Well, that's what, that's what you're projecting on there, and you're right. But, I mean, that kind of form, I mean, if you think about it, and this may strike you as odd, but the closest thing we've seen to that form recently is Farinelli and the King. Farinelli and the King is not a musical. No one's singing to each other. But you, there is music in it by a character who is a musical character. And, the, and a lot of the show is about that musical character's uh, fate and what happens to him. But mm -hmm. the main actor is Mark Rylance. He doesn't sing a note, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, so it's an odd combination. It's, you know, it, it's not carousel. It's different. But uh, when you, without picking it apart, when you put it all together, you enjoy the music, you enjoy the drama, and I enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah. Now, it's not going to be on for much longer because Jeremy Pope is going to be in the new Temptations Right. I can musical. see that. I can understand that. Um, yeah. So there is that. You should also be prepared for some frank sexuality and some nudity. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, the guy who plays Jeremy Pope's roommate, and uh, they have some great depictions of this wonderful sort of platonic intimacy that they share, John Clay Third. May I just say, um, he strikes me as rather Calipigian. Okay. Well, so well, go look it up. Yes, go. Calipigian. We're not going to get into that. Uh, but it was covered on a previous boy. podcast. Uh, yeah. A little bit interesting, challenging, and, uh, you know. But we're seeing, for sure. Very worth seeing. Uh, yeah. so, uh, so let me just go back in time a little bit to set up the rest of Saturday. Because you have to set it up by pointing out that we went out on Wednesday. And Wednesday, we went to see uh, Diane Reeves at McCarter Theater. And we don't go right. that often great to McCarter Theater. Great jazz songstress, is that what you say? Yeah, that's right. She's a great jazz singer and writer of uh, songs. Yeah, so we've seen Diane Reeves before, again, at McCarter. And we have a couple of Diane Reeves CDs. And uh, Diane Reeves can sing with anybody. Uh, well, her her voice is really her instrument. It's unbelievable. And she's down there, kind of jamming, yeah. with the rest of her group, yeah, uh, as if she's another, um, you know, yeah. instrumentalist. Yes, uh, but it's her voice, right? Well, that's uh, yeah. I mean, they used to say that about Barbara Streisand. She had an album called Barbara Streisand and Other Musical Instruments. Uh -huh. it's the same idea, and you know, Streisand can just hit a note and keep it. Uh, Reeves can do all that, and uh, she's often compared to Sarah Vaughan. Uh, which is nothing wrong with that. Uh, she's a great singer. It's interesting about Reeves is that the variety of stuff that she sings, okay? So she sings uh, standards, and she sings uh, stuff that's clearly not standards, things that she wrote herself, things that are harmonizing with other instruments. They're just sounds. Uh, they're scat talking, whatever, which yeah. I think is what you're alluding to. And it's very... Uh, it draws you in. There's no question it draws you in. That said... If someone wanted to get into Diane Reeves or hear some of her singing, uh, to me, it always, the CD that's the best for that is the Good Night uh, and Good Luck CD. 
From the movie. From the, the movie. soundtrack from the movie. Yeah, and I looked up the movie just to remind myself. So the movie is the story of uh, Edwin R. Murrow uh, and at the time that uh, you had the McCarthy hearings. And uh, it's uh, a great, first of all, it's a great movie. The interesting thing about that movie uh, which had an unbelievable cast. I had forgotten this. It had uh, David Strathorn as uh, Murrow, but it had uh, George Clooney, who was also the director of the movie. It had Robert Downey Jr. to Jeff Daniels in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had Patricia Clarkson in the movie. Uh, it's 2005. It was nominated for Best Picture. 2005? Yeah. I didn't realize it was that long ago. Nominated for Best Picture. Clooney nominated for Best Director. Strathorn nominated for Best Actor. They win nothing. Okay, mm-hmm. but uh, really a serious movie. But uh, Reeves is a character in the movie. What they do in order to set the stage in terms of the time, which was in the 1950s, is they have her playing a singer. They mm-hmm. would go to different uh, scenes in which there would be someone singing in the background, almost like an Ella Fitzgerald character. And she sings six or seven songs in the movie, or at least uh-huh. pieces of them. Uh, and uh, she's great. So I would look into that CD if you're interested in that kind of music. Uh, uh, songs like Straighten Up and Fly Right and, and, and the like, um, Good Night uh, and uh, Good Luck. Uh, but in any event, so we enjoyed Diane Reeves uh, a great deal. and we're that, sitting, was, that was at McCarter Theater. McCarter, and, we, and we had very good seats in kind of the front of the balcony. Right. And uh, But the funny thing was, sitting next to us was a very young woman. And uh, just before the performance starts, she runs out, uh, seemingly to talk on the phone or something. And then she comes back and I say, oh boy, we're in for this. Somebody who's too young to be here, doesn't want to be here, but is dragged here by friends or family or something. Um, And I couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, This person sitting next to me uh, was totally into Diane Reeves. She was uh, sighing at the right times, uh, calling out at the right times, clapping at the right times. She was getting it. And uh, I was kind of taken aback. And so just, you know, when everything ends and the ovations are over, I turned to her and I said, what's your story? And uh, it turns out her story is She's a student at Princeton, and she's a member of the uh, Jazz Vocal Collective at Princeton. And she said, and uh, we're having a concert. This was Wednesday. We're having a concert Saturday night and uh, at uh, in the Richardson Auditorium, which is in Alexander Hall, and uh, with Nina Freelon. And I said, oh, that's very nice. And then we left. And then, and, well, let me make two comments. And then, of course, we went to the concert, which is what we're going to come to in a minute in our jam-packed Saturday. But I have to remark on this. For those wondering how this works, when you reach a certain age, and let's call it 39, all right, you're allowed to turn to people next to you and say to them, even though you don't know them, what's your story, which is apparently what you, you know, did. Daniel, there are social people in the world who can <laughs> do that at any age. Is that right? Why you just think that suddenly I'm senile. <laughs> You're not senile. So I think it's great. I ask a question. No, I think it's great. And you said this to, uh, right there, and she responds to you as if, uh, 
That's a perfectly cool because question. normally when people ask a question, you answer it. I thought it was great. You were so direct. That's why she answered it so truthfully. And it was, You're yeah, both a, Princeton women. I, we understand each other. She didn't know that before. Neither did you, she, honestly. She still doesn't know that. Yeah, but in any event, so... So then we're determined. We have to then, go. Then, we have to go. Then so, we're saying, okay, good. So we're racing okay. back. Racing we, back. We're going... Oh. Fortunately, we're seeing a matinee right. in New York. Right. We're having a quick bite in New York. So Saturday. Or Saturday. zoom back. Right. Uh, and uh, ditch Dixon and Mark because they got other plans. <laughs> ditch there, exactly. And uh, head to Princeton and go to this concert. Right. And and we enjoyed it a great deal. It was really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, we didn't know who Nina Freelon is, but many of the people in the audience did, and she is worth knowing. Yeah. She was wonderful. And uh, fascinating. She has an interesting story. She is married to Philip Freelon, who's an architect. And in fact, uh, was part of the group, led the group that designed the Smithsonian African American Art Museum that opened fairly recently. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sadly, uh, in 2016, he was diagnosed with uh, ALS. The what we used to call the Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, so you haven't, uh, I just say that because uh, if you go to uh, Nina's biography, she hasn't performed mm-hmm. much uh, in, but, since 2000. But we should talk about who she is. I mean, she's a legitimate singer uh, who has a big background, six Grammy nominations, and at one point she was performing uh, 100 dates a year or something like that. She's roughly contemporary. Of Diane Reeves, if anything, a couple years older. She started her career late because she was raising the kids. That's her story. She started in her late thirties, really. And she, look, in 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 all honesty, not a superstar. I would say uh, cut or two below. I think Diane Reeves is, is very well known. Nina Freeman less whole, so. Yeah, yeah, but, but it's but, a whole oh, different kind of singing. I would oh, say. I don't think it's a whole different kind of singing, but it's different. Hey, look, everyone's got their own style. But I, I thought she was fantastic. I looked up a couple of articles, and they would say in 2004, 2005, when you think of the top singers around at this time who were singing jazz type, the names that keep coming up are Cassandra Wilson, uh, Diane Reeves, uh, Diana Krall, and Nina Freelon. Uh, so she hasn't been on our radar, but she's fairly well known. So she was part of the So group. anyway, a little more about the concert. Yeah, you better and explain of course, it. One, uh, the, uh, they alternated uh, from with the college kids, right. shall we say, the Jazz Voice Vocal Collective, and uh, both performing their own uh, versions, mm-hmm. their own uh, creations, and performing with uh, Freelon mm-hmm. uh, to some extent as well. And it was a very intimate setting. It's a small, beautiful venue uh, dating from the late 19th century. And uh, it, they apparently Freeline had been there all week as kind of a, um, you know, a master in residency. And uh, it apparently sounded like it had been a spectacular week. Mm-hmm. And we did see the young woman who had been sitting next to us, Danielle Stevenson. She performed several songs and uh, she even performed with Freelon and with the director of the Jazz Collective, Trinice Robinson Martin. And they were a powerhouse trio mm-hmm. of women singing. And the whole ambiance was one of real kind of uh, family 
intimacy uh, it was very personal mm-hmm. not unlike the personal ambiance of uh, the jazz festival at Mohonk right I mean they're really I don't know if it's a jazz thing or a music thing well but, yeah uh, it's both but we're learning that uh, anytime you're in a real small venue in something that's a little offbeat as opposed to the huge theater setting uh, there is clearly an added element to it and a big added element and I think that's what we're getting so we had a spectacular day yeah and we've been to great performances by student uh, groups at Princeton over the years. Uh, so it just reminds us, uh, you know, if I hadn't talked to Danielle at that uh, Reeves concert, we wouldn't have known about this. But we should go back and look for more of this. Because, at McCarter yeah, or Richardson. At McCarter, yeah. but it's university yeah. concerts. And, uh, and, and it's reasonably priced, so we will be like $15, <laughs> to be honest. Yes. So... Uh, all right, so the, well, let's get to the newspaper before we run out of time here. So you you found an article that uh, was pretty long for, for the for the Times Magazine. It section. was long and it was complicated. Oof. And I, I but can't, that, that didn't put you, you off. You know, so. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do a good job at this. But I was determined to uh, get into it because the title of the article is "The Secret History of Women in Coding," uh, and it's by Clive Thompson. And it was really fascinating. Now, I know a little bit about uh, women in coding from the get-go because of a couple of extracurricular things, mm-hmm. like the movie with, uh, what's-his-name, Cumberbatch, uh, Imitation Game. Right. Remember, he's playing Alan Turing, yeah. who uses math to right. uh, unlock... Uh, to decode important information during World War II. And all the people working in the decoding room are women. Hmm. Okay? Uh, possibly because men are at war, right? Yes, I think but so. so. So the women are responsible for this. So you see women uh, working at the, figuring out these things, okay? Plus, uh, you remember that uh, supposedly the first programmer ever was a woman. Yes. Well, well uh, yes. Lady Ada Lovelace. Right. Okay. A loose connection uh, there. Yeah. But yes. No, I, she actually comes up with a program for, uh, you know, I guess expressing the Bernoulli sequence of numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, for Charles Babbage, mm-hmm. who is creating the first computer. It never really happened. She dies. Uh, she, she doesn't get to see it actual, actually work. Um, and apparently Babbage never really builds, I don't know, builds the computer or whatever. Yeah. But the other cool thing about her, yeah, she gets into math because she's the daughter of the poet, Lord Byron. Right. Okay. Now and her mother wants her to do math so she doesn't go crazy right. like her dad. Uh, but well, anyway. Well, let's get back anyway, to this. Yeah. So, um, so the point of that all, that long preamble is, Coding starts with women. Yeah, okay. but Okay? <laughs> it's a good occupation for women. Women are good at it. Right. right? Uh, back in the day, um, in, in the early 60s, 27% of coders or programmers are women. Okay? And uh, that rises to 35% in 1990, has dipped back down to 23% by 2013. Mm -hmm. And during the 50s and 60s, for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, more and more women are involved in 
programming, in coding. And then that comes to a screeching halt in around 1984. And the reason that this uh, article gives is the advent of personal computers in your home. Mm-hmm. Women, uh, by, when computers come to the home, boys are using them more than girls. And when they get to college, uh, already have kind of a background in computing that the girls don't have, okay? And there begins to be a real sort of uh, difference uh, between back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, people are coming to college, they all don't know nothing, okay? Uh, Because people don't have a computer, they've never seen a computer before. It's the colleges, it's the big businesses that have computers. So they start, they can all start on an even basis. So women fall behind in that sense. Now, um, schools are trying to do something about that, okay? Trying to level the playing field because actually it was discovered that even though you're starting out you have different starting places. Once people get that initial uh, education and catch up to the people who have a bigger background in high school or whatever, and they begin to catch up, uh, they actually uh, there's no difference in uh, no big difference in ability levels and uh, rates of success. The problem was. Uh, keeping people from dropping out because they felt mm-hmm. so far behind. So that's changing. Uh, nonetheless, there are also perhaps social uh, aspects uh, that are yeah, discouraging I'm, I'm, women. I'm less persuaded by that, but I think I think your first point I am persuaded by. I mean, I do think that you don't have to that the advantage one has in terms of familiarity with computers is superficial when you get to school, and people are probably put off in a way they shouldn't be put off. And it's it's useful to keep people, uh, in particular women, it's fine with me, to keep them into it and make sure they're not discouraged because they're not there from day one. Well, you know, people kind of, uh, well, they've developed this whole idea of, uh, you know, the computer nerd. Yeah. I look, okay. I, I, and uh, before that, um, you know, it's uh, to the extent, well, to the extent, well, that now uh, they're re- uh, naming courses in computer programming to involve concepts of creativity, yeah. uh, because that's what it is. But it does, doesn't it strike you as crazy that, uh, 50 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, this was seen as a woman's job? No, well. And now, you know. No, I don't, doesn't uh, strike me as. shy away from it because it's a man's job. It doesn't strike me as crazy at all. It strikes me as not surprising, but, but it doesn't mean it's a good result. It's not surprising in the sense that to the extent it became a more coveted, more lucrative position and more people were competing for it across both sexes, uh, that in fact those percentages would change. Now, that it changed in a way that it's more male than female, it probably for the reasons that you identified, was that because of games or sports or whatever, and men were drawn to it when they were boys, maybe they got that advantage, or maybe it's because men are more career-oriented than women uh, in some sex uh, of the, some sections of the country. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But there's no question that economics is what changes everything. And the economics is what changed dramatically in this industry. But having said that, once you, if, if in fact 
there's absolutely no reason to think that men are better at this than women, then it's an opportunity for women, particularly women who see an economic opportunity here. They shouldn't hesitate. and They should go into it because well, they're just as likely to succeed. Yeah, and there are a lot of different factors. And some of it is just, as I said, plain old marketing. Well, but, but it doesn't make any difference what the factors are. The question is, is the opportunity there? If you're a woman, is the opportunity Some there? Some people are telling you the opportunity is not there. But, but They're I think, shut out. But, but I think this, this article is telling you it is, that they have the same aptitude as men, and there's no reason they can't do it if, in fact, they're determined if, Unless to do they it. don't get hired. They're going to get you hired. You know, there was a study uh, showing that yeah. uh, they had 5,000 resumes, but, and when you take off the biographical and gender information... Yeah. Fifty-four percent of those offered jobs are women. Well, you, know, you put that stuff back in; it's down to four percent. There's a study. Is uh, I, I, to me, but the history of this is is interesting. Yeah. Okay, because to read that in the 1960s, yeah. women programmers could make twenty thousand dollars. That's a lot a of money year. in 1960s. That was equivalent to one hundred and fifty thousand yeah. now. Okay, I had no idea. I think they still. Can. I was around during I, the I 60s. think they still can, but I think yeah. they have to understand that the opportunity is there, and I wouldn't be, you know, be put off by by anything. In fact, if woman's determined to do it. If you're a woman, you can definitely do it. And I think a lot of schools, frankly, are reaching out for women to get them involved in programs because they want to make sure that people recognize the opportunity and they'd like to recruit them. Well, they are. So, but again, you, you know, somebody has to uh, let people know it's, uh, you know, well, it's I, that's that's what we're here for. It's creative. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, as we were talking before. It's critical. It can thinking. be a fun job. It's, We've had people in our own family who have uh, recently uh, started coding and are enjoying it yeah. as a vocation. No, I'd be interested okay. in learning coding myself. I think it could be interesting. All right. So the secret history of women. And the history is fun and interesting yeah. of women in coding by Clive Thompson. Yeah, well, that sounds... Uh, I recommend good. to take a look. All right. So there was a much shorter article, and I don't understand this very well. You understand the coding better than I understand this. But there's still... Uh, the result is interesting to me. And it's, it has to do with Einstein and relativity. And I, I don't know. I've never understood relativity. But, but having said that... Uh, this struck me as as interesting, notwithstanding my lack of understanding. And that is that, you know, the theory of relativity Einstein put forward in 1905 equals mc squared uh, didn't make him famous, apparently. Uh, mc squared, energy, mass, and the speed of light. That's E equals mc squared. But no one bit to that. They said, this is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. We're not excited about it. Einstein followed up with a theory that what well, really expanded on this to include relationships of accelerated motion and gravity, uh, and really the way that light bends because uh, light is influenced by this. And uh, he wrote a paper, again, this is all relative to relativity, if I can say that. Uh, Newton, apparently, uh, was the first to observe that light was affected by gravity because light is made up of certain corpuscles. And therefore, as light travels, light bends because of gravity. Well, if Einstein's theory, Einstein agreed with Newton generally, but if Einstein's theory was correct, Einstein observed, and others agreed, then Newton would have understated the degree to which light was affected by gravity. And uh, Einstein, well, wait a second, wait a second, we're almost there. So Einstein observes this. Einstein says there's only one way to test. This is why girls don't go into coding. No, don't say that. That's sexist. This is, this is what Einstein says. He says there's one way to test this, whether it's me or Newton, is the astronomers can check the way light bends by observing an eclipse. And sure enough, in 1919, 
the notwithstanding that the World War World War One is going on, I guess it's 1917. The World War One's going on. The British government takes a certain amount of money to set up two different observatories. Uh, one in West Africa, one in Brazil, to observe a particular eclipse to see whether Newton's right or Einstein's right. I'll cut through it. Einstein's right. Theory of relativity is in effect proven by the way they observed the way light bends during this eclipse. And why do we care? How do we use the theory of relativity today? All right? It turns out, yes, it helps explain the Big Bang Theory. Again, you're nodding off. But the, the theory of relativity is used to support GPS. Without, without the theory of relativity, <laughs> GPS wouldn't work. Okay, thank you, Albert. All right, so we got that in. You got to give, you got to give your props to Einstein. All right, I, I'll move on. So let me. I'm let, all for Einstein. Museum update. He, give he me went, the. He went to Princeton too. Yes, give me the ding, 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 because I know this is your uh, area. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, museum, museum update. update. But see, I'm pushing oh. the museum update now. Okay. All right. Because you're going to go to these exhibitions. No, right? I'm not going to any exhibitions. But uh, you know, unless it's Einstein. So there are two. One is uh, where is this first one? Jerome Robbins. Uh, there is an exhibit uh, the American the New, Pub- New York, York Public Library, right? Yes. Okay, so Jerome Robbins, who was named, as you observed a moment ago, Jerome Rabinowitz, I believe. Uh, and in fact, uh, his parents owned a delicatessen. Uh, and yet, Jerome Robbins, notwithstanding what we might call a very mundane background, became the greatest choreographer on Broadway and also a great ballet choreographer uh, in the 50s and 60s. West Side Story... Yeah, wonderful town, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, known in uh, Broadway. And he was a larger-than-life personality. Yes, a difficult well. guy, uh, yeah. a tyrant. Uh, you, you read people who write about West Side Story as, you know, you had Leonard Bernstein, you had Stephen Sondheim, you had all kinds of creative force there. And you know who was in charge? Jerome Robbins. Jerome Robbins came in the day and said, you know, guys, this is a dance show. <laughs> and that, And they all cowered. So that's the way Jerome, he's that big a figure. So this is a collection of his memorabilia? Memorabilia. He gave it to the museum, uh, to, to the library, and they're putting on the exhibit. But apparently it turns out to be a very vivid uh, imagery and evidence of what New York was in the 40s, 50s. He took a lot. He did some paintings. He took some photographs. He showed the settings and how he is. He developed all these dances. Uh, it turns out he's kind of an odd guy. He, he was, a lot of people found him difficult. He uh, fought depression. Uh, he had all kinds of psychological issues. But they he also st- testified. Uh, oh, that's a good story. That's um, a good point. The um, talk about the McCarthy hearings. He testified right. the House of American activities, activities, and he fingered people who he identified as communists, including Zero Mostel. Yes. And what's ironic about that is, X years later, he directed he Zero Mostel to be in, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof, and and they came around and then got back together yeah. again. So that worked out. So anyway, that's an interesting exhibit, uh, and also an interesting exhibit at the Morgan, uh, an exhibit having to do with Tolkien, uh, Tolkien, who did the the Hobbit, of course, um, and Lord of the Rings. Uh, it turns out. That uh, that Tolkien was uh, totally into creating these artificial worlds that he wrote about, so much so that he he made all these maps about what it was like in Middle Earth. Uh, he painted what Middle Earth looked like, right. and often he did this to prepare himself to write the books. Okay, so this is at the Morgan Library till yes. May. Yes, and you seem astonished. Yeah, but really, it's an aid to him to you know, structure 
the scenes to populate these places. I find it completely understandable. Do you? Yeah. Really? But also, you know what's interesting? Uh, I was just kind of uh, going through his biography a little bit. And, you know, he did uh, fight in World War One. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, here are more and more connections with uh, Peter Jackson uh, and Jackson's uh, interests and uh, successes with uh, Tolkien. Well, uh, what they say here, they say, look, uh, they don't want to say that he uh, really believed these worlds existed, but he really believed these worlds existed, or at least he invested so much in them that he thought, I mean, he even invented languages for these worlds. And again, this is an exhibit at the Morgan Library, and it's all this Tolkien uh, stuff that he created. That's not the books. It's outside the books to help Tolkien feel that these were real worlds. Morgan, always a fun place to go, the Morgan Library in New York, and that sounds like a fun exhibition. Uh, I was going to say something about Colin Kaepernick, and um, just quickly, because I know that's gotten a lot of press. Um, And why has that gotten a lot of press? Well, uh, well, he came to a settlement. Yes, he did. But but it, what's more interesting to me is that you made the observation immediately when we were watching Alliance football ten days ago. Alliance football, yes, the new league, the new league. Yeah, and you turned to me and said, "Why isn't Colin Kaepernick playing in this league?" Right. I thought he's looking for an wouldn't opportunity to get back in football. Publicity and uh, and wouldn't that get be a way for him to get back into the game? Yeah. Right. And, and I said, I don't know. And you found out? Yes. There was an article that said that, in fact, uh, the league went to him and approached him early last week. And he said he would not get involved in, in Lions football for less than $20 million. All right? Uh-huh. And that seemed crazy. And that was kind of a laugh line. And then didn't make any sense to me. And then two days later, he settled. And now I'm beginning to think, what's going on? So what's going on? So he settled for a number between $13 million and $90 million. Okay. Whoa. All right. Whoa. We'll never know what it is. But here's the thing about Kaepernick. All right. To put things in perspective. And let me say right off the bat that I believe I have no reason to doubt that Kaepernick believes wholly and sincerely in his cause. Right. Not, not questioning that for okay. a moment. All, all right? right. But let's talk money. Okay. Kaepernick earned before his career ended something in the nature of 20, 25 million dollars in the NFL. All right. His whole career. Yeah. And the, the, okay. when he was playing. And now he's getting a settlement, I don't know what it's going to be, 13, 50, 60, 70 million dollars, all right? So, yes, when Kaepernick's asked, do you want to play for the football league, for which is paying $600,000 a year, it's clear the answer is going to be no. Right. All right? Okay. Uh, so and that explains that. Explains that. But also, to the extent that people talk about Kaepernick making a huge sacrifice, uh, that was the Nike thing about it. you're making a sacrifice to make a point. Kaepernick didn't make any sacrifices in terms mm-hmm. of financial at all. Again, I, bo- I totally credit he sincerely believes in that. But the money story is a totally different story. And, of course, what he was settling is a claim for collusion. I should say that. He claimed that there was collusion in the league to keep him out of the league. And uh, the NFL doesn't want the bad publicity, so that's that. So, anyway, that's the end of that story. So, you, are, you were going to talk about something else. I was going to talk about something else. I was just going to mention, uh, you know, remember when we were talking about... Uh, the um, corporate musicals. Yeah. Uh, Bathtubs over Broadway. Bathtubs over Broadway. Right. And so I'm um, watching the news this week, and uh, there's this company, Insys, I-N-S-Y-S, yeah. that is being investigated uh, as perhaps having bribed um, doctors, etc., for to overprescribe mm-hmm. the opiate 
opioids they were uh, promoting. And uh, as sort of proof of this, uh, people have come up with a rap video that uh, INSYS produced uh, for their 2015 sales and marketing meeting. So they have what they, uh, so they have a rap video with a dancing sort of fentanyl so they have, inhaler. They, they had and, one of these shows basically. Yes, basically one of these shows. Tremendous, I've only seen bits of it, tremendous uh production values. That's great. Uh, and but it's the same thing. They, only it's not a live show now, it's uh, a video rap, instead. But so rap those, pharmaceuticals. those things are still being crafted. Yes, well maybe that's well that's very interesting. That's Strange but true, I guess. Uh, yeah. All right. So obituaries, uh, just too quickly, uh, not household names, or maybe some household. Bruno Ganz died. Bruno Ganz uh, was a great actor, a Swiss actor. Uh, he was in a docudrama uh, about Hitler. Got a lot of publicity in 2004. But for most, uh, most for a lot of people, uh, Bruno Ganz' uh, key part was in a film called Wings of Desire in uh, 1987. A uh, Wim Wenders drama in which uh, Gans played an angel whose job was to spend time on Earth, make himself visible to the dying, to comfort them. But the character saw such beauty in human life that he wanted it for himself. And he decides he doesn't want to be an angel anymore. Uh, it's a hard movie to explain. But, but Wings of Desire, again, 1987, uh, I'll just mention, is a great movie. Now, some people say it's only okay and some people say it's magnificent. Uh, I think it's magnificent, but Bruno Ganz is a big part of that movie, and it's a very, you know, it's a, he's a, it's black and white. He's a striking figure, even though he's an ordinary figure. He's an angel, but he's not wearing wings. He's wearing an Armani uh, overcoat. Famously, Armani got quite a bit out of this. <laughs> and I will just say that one of his fellow angels, and the thing that floors you when you watch the movie because it's so celestial on the one hand and foreign and exotic on the other hand, who's the angel he comes to meet? Peter Falk. So one day, you know the other. <laughs> exactly. So I will just recommend uh, Wings of Desire, nineteen eighty-seven. And so we're going to end with uh, the obituary of Mabel Lee, yeah. a singing and tap dancing queen of the jukebox musical films, and she passed away at the age of ninety-seven, most recently having performed this past July. And a uh, terrific dancer, famous for the Chicken Shack Shuffle. Mm. And uh, still um, teaching people, still dancing. Uh, she's mentioned here um, uh, as being a person in a culture with so much vulgarity. She showed us how sexuality could be fun, funny and tasteful. And she was part of the New York City Tap Festival. For example, anyway, I just, uh, what really caught my eye about this obituary was an expression uh, used to describe her, an expression I've never heard before. And this is in a quote from Beverly Moore, a dancer and friend of Mabel Lee. She made a way for herself and paved a way for others, said Beverly Moore. She was a lover of life but she took no tea for anybody's fever. Which means what? The Times uh, explains that as meaning she did not put up with anyone's nonsense. 
All right. So took no tea. That's the way we do it. We don't. Favor. We take no tea fever. for anyone's fever. So uh, yeah, new words to live so by. So as we sign off today, we want to leave you with uh, some singing by Nina Freelon. Yes, she, she has a wonderful version that she sang last night of "Tears of a Clown," Smokey Robinson song, which Smokey is quoted as saying that uh, it's his favorite version. And there are a zillion covers of Tears of a Clown. So uh, That's all for today. Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhop. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. See you next week. Now if there's a smile on my face It's only there trying to But when it comes down to fooling you, now, honey, that's quite a different subject. Don't let my glad expression give you the wrong impression. Really, I'm sad. Mm, sadder than sad. You're gone and I'm hurting so bad Like a clown I pretend to be glad There's no one around